0: As you're seated, would you open the Bible, please, to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, we'll go through this chapter together, but I want to let you know I am here to announce to you this morning that Jesus is alive. Amen. Amen. That's right. There are many people here in this place who will tell you that Jesus is alive. Now, there are many across this world who deny that. And they claim that even if Jesus existed, he died, just like the rest of us, and he stayed that way. But we and many other faithful churches in this area and across the planet will testify that Jesus is alive, he is risen. Amen. He is risen indeed, praise God. How do we know that? (laughs) Amen, brother. Why do we say that? Why do we believe that? Why do we get excited on a Sunday morning, any Sunday morning? We celebrate every Sunday morning because Jesus is alive, but particularly this one. Why do we believe this? Shortly after the life of Jesus, one man named Theophilus had some questions. And he had been taught about Jesus, he'd been taught about his life, his death, his resurrection, but he was. Starting to wonder, people were saying different things, and they were spreading lies about Jesus, and maybe he hadn't really died, or maybe he hadn't really risen from the grave. And so, a Gentile doctor named Luke wrote to give assurance of Jesus' resurrection, And not just that, all of Jesus' life, but particularly and certainly that. So at the beginning of this gospel, you can hold your place here and go all the way back to chapter 1 or just listen as I read to you Luke's introduction. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You need to have certainty concerning the things you have been taught about Jesus' life, his death, and resurrection. And so, Luke wrote this gospel of Jesus Christ to give Theophilus and many others certainty concerning the things they have been taught about Jesus. Now, uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit enabled this book to be written, these words to be written, and we can be sure of them, but God wasn't finished with Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. And so at the beginning of Acts in his introduction, Luke says, "...in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen." Here's what he says in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Luke gives us part 2 in Acts where we read about the power of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of just mere men. But in this beginning of the book of Acts, Luke says that Jesus presented himself alive to his apostles by many proofs. Over the course of many days. Now, proofs are clear evidences. They are clear, convincing proofs. So, it stands to reason that if Luke said that this is certainty about Jesus, and if he said there were many proofs, that you would think that Luke recorded some of the proofs of who Jesus is and his resurrection. Well, I want to tell you this morning that he did. And they're here in Luke chapter 24, and they're very well spelled out here. But what I want to do this morning is look at the proofs available with you. The proofs that are available to us of Jesus' resurrection. Again, they're going to be clear, but you may be surprised that of all of the proofs that are available, only one will be truly convincing. Only one will be. There are two kinds of proofs. We've organized them into two different categories. Kinds of proofs in Luke 24. The first one, A, in your notes that we're going to see are observable proof. Observable These are proofs that you look at. You can see, you hear, taste, smell, touch your your five senses. Use your powers of observation. Use the ways that God has given you uh, to make sense out of the world. Use your brain to comprehend them and see them and understand them. What do these proofs tell you? The first observable proof is number one, the stone was rolled away from the tomb. The stone was rolled away from the tomb. Verse one of Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, there's some debate over what the stone looked like, whether it was a big round disc like we picture a lot of times, or whether it was kind of cork-shaped, a big kind of cube with a, a tube at the front of it that slid right in to, to cover the tomb, whichever way it looked. Um, <clears throat> If it was round, uh, Jesus would have been laid in the tomb. The stone would have been leaning up against the wall and it, it had been propped up at a slight angle, a slight incline as they laid Jesus in there. And then it would have only taken probably one man to just let it loose and fall into place in front of the tomb, a short downhill roll. So to roll the stone into one place was one thing. To see the stone rolled away from the tomb was a whole different thing, wasn't it? Uh, Nobody knows exactly how heavy the stone would have been, somewhere between 600 and 2,000 pounds, a pretty heavy rock. records show us, though, that again, one person could roll it into place. It would take at least two men to roll it out of place, the heavy stone up and away from the mouth of the tomb, and both of them would have to be healthy. One of them could not have been... uh, a Jesus who had been um, crucified and whipped and, and beaten to within an inch of his life and then if he hadn't really died then he would have come to life and then come out and pushed the stone out of the way none of that's even possible Okay. so if the stone was cork shaped it would have had to have been pushed straight back and then rolled out of the way of the tomb but in either case the stone is now away from the tomb and that was the first observable proof thankfully not the only one Jesus is alive because of the stone being rolled away from the tomb. Number two, the second observable proof is that they did not find the body of Jesus, in verse three. Verse three says, while they were, I'm sorry, verse three says, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. There's no body there. Now, this is important because Jesus' body had been in the tomb. Just before this, chap- this, uh, this chapter and, and this paragraph, the paragraph right before it, uh, Joseph himself had placed Jesus' body in the tomb. Joseph had done it himself, and there were several women who had seen it all happen. These are the same women who come here in chapter 24 looking for his body. But not only that, Matthew 27 records a whole guard of soldiers stationed, positioned right in front of the tomb, the stone being rolled in front of it, and the stone being sealed by the guard the next day. See, that happened the next day, Matthew 27 says. So that means the captain of the guard would have gone inside the tomb, verified that the body was there, come back out, rolled the stone, sealed it, and they would have stood guard for the rest of the time. So that means Jesus' body was placed in there on the first day. The guard entered in to make sure on the second day and sealed it. On the third day, his body's not there. His body is not in the tomb. So there are multiple witnesses available that the body of Jesus was placed in the tomb and his body was still in the tomb the first and the second day, but not on Sunday. Number 3, an observable proof that we see in verses 4 through 12 is that angels announce his resurrection. The angels announce it in verse 4 while they were perplexed about this, behold two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, "Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen." And they go on to remind them what Jesus said. They tell the women, "Go tell the disciples, and they run, and they go tell them, but verse 11 says, "Nobody believed them. No one believed the women who just saw the stone rolled away, who saw the empty tomb, who heard the angels tell them that Jesus is alive. Now, we need to pause here for just a minute. We need to consider this carefully. The Bible is very clear that Jesus has risen from the dead. He's out of the grave. He's no longer in the tomb. God is giving us clear, observable proofs that Jesus is alive. And so far, we've got these three. We're going to see more. But even at this point, these are some of the same proofs that we have still with us today. The people at the time who were alive did not believe it. People who are alive today do not believe it. Why would we expect them to believe it if the people who were alive and saw it didn't, if it wasn't convincing enough to them? How can we be so uh, sure that sharing these proofs are going to convince anybody that Jesus is alive? Now, what I mean is that these proofs are real and they are true, and, and we need to know these, we need to understand these, and believe that this is true, but these are not given to us to try to use them to convince people of Jesus' resurrection. It didn't work the day that it happened. It's not going to be convincing enough today. There's something else that's needed. And, and we'll see it in the next kind of proof in, the, uh, in B in our notes, but we're not there yet. We need to keep seeing these observable proofs. So, so the angels, the messengers announced Jesus' resurrection. Why? Well, because the disciples are nowhere around, are they? <laughs> the disciples are, are hiding off in a different place. His followers didn't take his body. The women had come with spices to anoint his dead body. The women didn't take his body, right? So the people who have believed in him haven't taken his body. So it takes a completely different third party to come and announce his resurrection from the grave, not his own followers. So observe that proof that it was angels who announced his resurrection. Number four, the next observable proof in verses 13 to 35 is that Jesus himself appeared and spoke. Jesus himself appears now. Now, we're not going to read this whole section, but uh, Jesus had many followers, many disciples, not just the 12, minus Judas, who at this point is now dead. There are now 11 capital D disciples, capital A apostles, but there were other followers. Two of them are here, and they're sad. And so they leave Jerusalem. They think, you know, we just got to get out of town. They start heading to Emmaus, which is seven miles away. They start walking in the afternoon, and as they do, Jesus joins them. He appears to them, but they don't recognize him. In biblical irony, they sorrowfully recount to Jesus what happened to Jesus, and they tell him they don't know what to do because our whole hope was based on him. We thought he was going to be the savior. We thought he was going to take over. We 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 thought we thought we thought, and now he's dead. And, and now we just, uh, some women have said that some angels said, you know, like third, fourth hand now that he's alive, and uh, we just don't know what to do. So Jesus teaches them that it was all necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter his glory. So these two disciples get to Emmaus, and, and they invite Jesus for dinner, and as they have dinner, Jesus breaks bread and blesses it, and then suddenly they recognize him, and then he disappears. He's gone. And so they run to tell the other disciples, again, seven miles back to where the other disciples were, and we're not told exactly what point Jesus had joined them on that journey, but the average human being walks about three and a half miles an hour, so seven mile trip would take about two hours, plus the time that it would take to prepare dinner and eat dinner together. We're looking at up to three hours that they just spent with Jesus, not recognizing him, walking with him, talking with him, even eating with him. They weren't convinced the whole time until right at the end. Seeing Jesus himself didn't convince them that he was alive. Now again, it's valid, it's true, it's factually demonstrable evidence, but it wasn't enough to see Jesus alive talking with him. You say, well, that's just because they didn't recognize him. So what would happen if people did recognize him? Well, that's number five. Number five, observable proof, the disciples see and touch him. In in verses 36 to 41, the disciples see him and they touch him. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. There's a ghost. (laughs) He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Okay, so now they're saying, okay, he's not a ghost. This is Jesus. Look at verse 40. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, seeing Jesus, recognizing Jesus, standing right there, touching his hands and feet, and they were still unbelieving, still did not believe. Brothers and sisters, are you seeing the proofs? Are you seeing the evidence that Jesus is alive? The stone has been moved. The tomb tomb is empty. The angels have announced it. Jesus appears and talks with two people. Jesus appears to his own followers and gives them all of the proofs, and they still don't believe it. It's all very convincing proof, but it's not convincing anybody. Let's look at the final one here in Luke chapter 24. Jesus ate fish. Number six, he ate fish fish. Verse 42, at the the end of verse 41, he says, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So, to prove that Jesus' resurrection was not spiritual, he wasn't a ghost or a spirit or just sort of kind of there, he ate some fish right in front of them. Now, in your normal interactions with ghosts, how many times have you seen them eat? (laughs) You know, I've never encountered a ghost, but if I did, The last thing I'd be thinking about is, can he eat fish, (laughs) right? You wouldn't expect a ghost to eat anything, let alone fish, but Jesus ate the fish to show them, to show us, to show Luke and to show Theophilus that he was real, that he was dead, but now he's alive. He's physically alive for real. Now listen, there are other proofs. There are other lines of evidence that can be considered. Jesus was dead. Again, he was not swooned or passed out. He didn't just come back uh, to consciousness when he was laid in the tomb. There are others that we can glean from Luke and from other gospels. I mean, you've got 11 random guys, some of whom hate each other until Jesus comes and changes them and then they change the world. These random guys. I mean, there are a lot of other evidences and testimonies about Jesus' resurrection. But as good as all of those proofs are, None of them, none of them altogether have produced a world full of believers. These convincing proofs and reliable evidence, and all of the witnesses, there were over 500 people who saw him at one time, 1 Corinthians 15 says. None of that has produced even a room full of witnesses when Jesus stood there right in front of them and showed them his hands and his feet. Why not? Because all of the observable proof will never be enough to convince someone to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Jesus. There's something else missing. Until you receive the next kind of proof, you will also never believe. So after looking at the observable proof, let's go back through this account and notice the other kind of proof that was convincing and led to believers. Be in your notes, revealed proof. Let's look at the revealed proof. In this chapter, now there are three occurrences of the revelation of God being used to teach the resurrection, and that is what convinces someone and makes a believer out of that person. This is what fully and truly convinces a person to believe and to become a believer in Jesus. Let's look at them. The first one, number one, the women remembered Jesus' words. Jesus' words back to verse 6 He is not here but has risen remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise and they remembered his words and returning from the tomb they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest You see, brothers and sisters, after the women saw the first two proofs and they heard the third one with the angels announcing that Jesus is alive, they were frightened. They were perplexed. They don't know what to do next. They don't know what's happening. They're they're, they're kind of in that that fog, that haze. What's the right what do we do now? The angels come and announce his resurrection, and, and that's not it. It doesn't do it for them. But then they tell the women to remember his what? His words. Remember the words of Jesus. Remember the revelation from Jesus who told them time after time while he was alive that he was going to die, but then he would rise again. Remember that Jesus said it would happen. It was necessary. It needed to happen. That had been prophesied in the Old Testament that it would happen. God said it. Jesus said it. And then Jesus fulfilled it. And they, when they remember his words, they believe. When they remember his words, that's when they believe because of the words of God spoken through the words of Jesus revealed to them. The second one, number two in your notes, the two disciples hear Jesus' words. Verses 27 and 32. The two disciples who had spent up to three hours with him finally become convinced. How? Was it through seeing him? No, not really, not initially. Spending time with him, talking with him? No, his appearance did not convince them. They didn't even recognize him. Their eyes became opened at the end when he blessed the bread and broke it. They said, oh, that's him. But what from their own mouths was the testifying, the testimony about the confirmation? Look at verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. That's the Old Testament. At the time, they didn't have Old Testament, New Testament. So they have Old Testament, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So as their eyes are opened and they recognize him, look down at verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Verse 32, they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? The scriptures from their own mouths. The confirmation was the word of God expounded to them, taught to them. They believed because of the word of God that revealed proof of scripture. This is the final one, number three. The disciples hear Jesus' words. Verse 44 through 49. See, the disciples to this point had all of the observable proof that would be available to them. <laughs> At this point, they know it all. They know the stone has been removed. They've heard about it. They've seen that the tomb is empty or they've heard about it. Uh, The the angels have announced that he's alive They know that he just appeared to two of the disciples They're seeing him right now They've seen him, they've touched him He's just eaten some fish Yet they they still do not believe What is it that convinces them? What is it? Verse 44 Then he said to them These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you That everything written about me in the law of Moses And the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled Again, that's all Old Testament scripture Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. I ask again, what was it that convinced the disciples to truly believe in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, the risen Savior? It was the Word of God, the Scriptures, the revealed proof of the Word. You see, the reason that we believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ is because of the faith that God gives us through his word. The resurrection is true and there's plenty of evidence for it. The fact of it, the truth of it, all of it, it's plenty of it. There's plenty there. It has to be because it actually physically happened. So there has to be physical proof. (laughs) But just the proofs and the evidence alone will never convince a person to become a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter whether we can identify the empty tomb today. There it is. It's this one right here. See how it's empty? It doesn't matter if the the Shroud of Turin is what covered Jesus. Have you heard of the Shroud of Turin? It's that burial cloth. It's a a cloth that was a very old cloth. It was said to bury uh, Jesus, or he was buried with it. And it has bloodstains that match up with wounds that someone would have been crucified with, would have had. And and some say it was Jesus, and it's been declared a, a holy relic, it's been declared a holy icon, and it's even been declared a forgery. Whether it's a forgery or real, whether it was Jesus' burial cloth or just somebody else's, the Shroud of Turin is not why we believe that Jesus was dead and now is alive. It's not because the tomb is empty or because the women believed or because the disciples believed. We believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, true God and true man because God declared it for us in his word. He told us. As our brother over here said, because God said so. His word brings us the faith to believe and receive Jesus' resurrection from the dead. If somebody were to ask you, Why do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Your answer, brother, sister, disciple of Christ, is because God said so in his word. Do you have any proof? Yeah, we've got plenty of proof. (laughs) We've got plenty of proof. But that proof is not going to help you much without the faith that comes from the substance of our faith, which is the word of God. The substance of our faith is his word. Do not stake your faith, brother, sister, man, woman, do not stake your faith in the observable proofs that Jesus rose from the grave or from the dead. Do not stake your faith in tradition or science or observation or evidence. Stake your faith in the faithfulness of God in his word. Even if you could convince somebody, you, you know, you, you took them and you, and you walked through all of that observable proof and you, you convinced them, okay, yes, I agree with you. This man must have risen from the grave. There's no other answer. It means nothing without faith in that man, Jesus Christ. And that only comes from the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, the word of Christ. And you don't need to take my word for it. Jesus actually told us this would happen before he even died, before he rose again in Luke chapter 16. You don't have to turn there. We don't have time to read the whole parable, but Jesus told a parable of a rich man and Lazarus. And you remember that the rich man had everything he ever wanted and the poor man, Lazarus, was outside his gates. He just wanted to have the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. He just wanted something. In the course of time, uh, the rich man dies and Lazarus dies and they go to the place where where they're assigned and, and this is a good place to remind ourselves that in parables, we teach and we learn the main point of the parable, not side points, because we can get really off track if we try to decipher everything that's in here and try to make one-to-one theological points on that, but the poor man Lazarus is at Abraham's side, it says, and, and the rich man is in a place of torment, and it's fiery, and it's hot, and he asks Abraham, would you just send Lazarus, just have him dip his finger in some water and just let it drop in my mouth because it's so hot, And terrible here. And Abraham says, no, we can't. We can't do that. It's too big of a place, and and that's not allowed. So, Lazarus says, well, then would you send the, the, not Lazarus, the rich man says, would you send Lazarus then from the dead? Make him alive again. Go tell my five brothers. They really need to know what is it that Abraham tells him. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. That's Old Testament scripture. Let them hear them. The rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If someone comes from the dead, Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus said, I'm going to be rising from the dead, and they're still not going to believe. Even if Lazarus had risen from the dead, people would not believe. Later on, Jesus would heal a man, a different man named Lazarus, and people still would not believe. If you meet people that do not believe in Jesus Christ, his resurrection, or anything else that he did, it's because faith is missing. The faith that comes from the Word of God. If you've ever given all of the proof and all of the evidence for the resurrection, the person still doesn't believe. It's not because they're not intelligent. It's not because they can't weigh evidence. It's not because they're dense. It's because they don't have faith that comes from the Word of God. And the reason that we believe is not because we're so smart or because we're so wonderful. But because Jesus is so wonderful and his word is so wonderful and he has given us faith through it. So then what do we do with all of this proof? What do we do with this evidence? We believe it. It's real. It's true. It's factual. The biblical ones are. The extra ones may be not all that helpful. But we're grounded in the word of God for this truth. Not experience, not science, not what's new or newsworthy. We believe the proofs in the Word of God because we believe the Word of God. And we believe he's risen because of the Word of God. Even if somebody came to you, even if somebody came to you and said, you know what, they have found, that scientists have found remains of a body. And through DNA evidence, they have found that this is the person Jesus of Nazareth. They say that, you know, that we've found these remains. And through DNA, we can show you that this is Jesus Somehow, some way, what our answer would be is that your assumptions, your conclusions, your methods, something is wrong, because we hold fast to the word of God. God has told us He has risen. He is risen indeed. We hold fast to the Word of God because God's word is higher than man's mind, man's word, man's experience, man's science. Jesus is alive. This is the gospel, according to the Bible. Our whole faith consists of Jesus Christ being risen. 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. That is the good news. We have received that gospel from the word of God and we have believed that gospel from the word of God. So brother and sister, never doubt that Jesus rose from the grave. No matter what kind of documentary comes out, and this time of year they all come out, don't they? (laughs) All the documentaries and all the shows and everything that questions anything and everything, no matter what kind of science is manipulated to disprove his life or his death or his resurrection, no matter what anybody else says, Jesus is alive because God says so. Romans 6, 9 and 10, as we read this morning, Pastor Kyle read for us, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Know it, believer, and praise him for it. If you're here, though, and you've never believed in the resurrection of Jesus, you have seen the best proof we have. There are other proofs, there's other evidence, but this is some of the best. And you may have found a reason to pick holes in every one of those observable proofs. You may have a reason not to believe any of it. Maybe you've watched all the documentaries that come out, (laughs) and and you've seen every reason not to believe any of that. We're not here to show you that evidence. The evidence that still stands after 2,000 years, the proof that settles the question of who Jesus is, what he did, and why he did it, is still here before you. The Word of God is what confronts you and me this morning. The proof that we offer you is here the word of God is true, the word of God is final, but more than that, he shows us, he tells us why Jesus came to live perfectly, to die on the cross, and to rise again. In everything that God has said and done, you and I as human beings are ingrained to resist it. We, if, if God says jump, we say I'm going to run the opposite direction. Uh, everything that God says ingrained within us, we, have a, we just have a doubt about what God says, a doubt about who God is, and, and even just we have a, a bent, uh, an ingrained, reasoned thought just to deny that God even exists altogether. The reason for that is because of what the Bible says about us, that we are sinners. Uh, people who sin, what does that mean? It means that you act and you think and you feel and you speak in ways other than how God says you should act and speak and think and feel. But even more than that, God's word tells us in his Bible that being a sinner is something that consumes us to becoming the point of our identity. Who I am before God is a sinner. Not just somebody who does some wrong things sometimes, but I am a sinner. So that means you're not just a person who sins, but a sinner. What does that look like? Again, that means you don't act, think, speak, feel, like God wants you to. But more than that, I don't care. I don't, it's just not that important what the Bible says. It's not that important what God says. Going to church isn't all that important. Or if I do go to church, really, I'm just trying to appease mom or dad, or you know, I need to do some networking, and get some more clients. <laughs> or maybe I want a sense of belonging. But, but see, being a sinner doesn't necessarily being a thief or a murderer or some kind of big sins, though it does include that. Being a sinner means thinking, I don't know what God says, I don't really care what God says. I don't know who God is. I just want him to help me when I need him. He's just whoever I want him to be. He's whoever people tell me to be. Being a sinner just means simply, I want to be in charge of me. I don't want God to be in charge of me. And in thinking that way and acting that way, speaking that way, based on that, we don't just do what God says not to do. We take on the existence and identity of being enemies of God as sinners because God is in charge. But when we say, I don't want him to be in charge, I want to be in charge. It's a direct assault on the sovereign, eternal, powerful God. That means we're the rebels, we're the sinners, we're the enemies of God in our sin. So the bad things we do are sins, the ways that we disobey God, those are sins. But it's the reason that we sin that really dooms us, and it's because we are sinners that we produce more sin. And it doesn't look so bad to us in life. In fact, sometimes it feels pretty good to do the things that God says not to do, or not to do the things that he says to do. But the word of God reveals the truth to us that sin really is bad. Being a sinner is really bad because, again, it is that direct assault against God, the eternal, powerful, good, holy God. And he sees right through you and me, and he sees right through to the heart of us, and he will judge us one day using his perfect word as the standard. And even though we can pretend that it doesn't matter right now, one day we will know that there is no way around. We can try to ignore him now, but there will be no ignoring him when we stand before him as the judge. And so we stand before God, every one of us, guilty of breaking his laws, breaking his word. You and I will be exposed as sinners. And because God is just and holy, He doesn't play any favorites. He doesn't think, well, you did some good things too. No, we are sinners before Him. All of us will be judged. We'll be found guilty and we will suffer the consequences of His judgment forever in a place called hell. The Bible describes it for us. In fact, the Bible tells us more about that place of torment than it does the place of glory with God in heaven. It's a real place. And we can try to depend, I mean, to to try to uh, ignore it, try to pretend it doesn't exist and that we won't go there, but you will go there. I will go there based on our sinfulness without Jesus. But that's the reason he came. That is why he came, so that you and I do not have to be punished forever by God in hell. Jesus, as the Son of God, came to earth as a human being just like all of us, and never one time did he sin. He loved God, his Father, with his whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Never stopped. He loved the people around him more than he loved himself. He never stopped. Every second of every day, he was the only perfect human being. He never produced sin for himself. He perfectly obeyed every one of God's commands. But then he was condemned to death by humanity. See, that's what we do. When we see somebody obeying God, we think, I need to get rid of that. I need to either get away, walk away, or if I can't get it out of here, then I'm going to kill it. And that's what they did to Jesus. They beat him, they spit on him, they scourged him, they humiliated him, they executed him in the most painful way they could think of. But none of that was even close to the pain that he endured when he took my sin from me. He took my sin, my consequences that I deserved, that I earned. What I earned was God's punishment, his wrath against me because of my sins. He took them away from me. My identity as a sinner, Jesus took that on and he paid the penalty on the cross. And then he took that perfect life that he lived, the perfect life that he only could do and he gave it to me so that before God I'm no longer a sinner, I'm his son. And then to prove all of that, he rose from the dead three days later. And he not only conquered my sin and paid for it, he conquered my other enemy, the enemy that I have no control over, death that comes because of sin. He conquered that. Every human being faces these two enemies and he did that for you also if you will believe in him. If you will turn away from yourself and your sins, turn to him in faith. That's what the word of God confronts you with and confronts me with. That's the revealed proof of God's word. It's the truth of who you are. It's the truth of who God is. It's the truth of who Jesus is and what he did, what he came to do. It's why he lived and died and rose again. But now the question is what do we do with that? How do we respond? And here is our application. You could reject it. You could continue to ignore all of this, dismiss it as unimportant. You can find every reason out there not to believe in any of this. But it does not change the truth of God's word. This is the truth. You could marvel and be surprised. You could think, wow, that's a lot of proof. I never thought about it that way. That maybe that's that's pretty interesting. That's pretty great. You could think it sounds right and true, but unless you respond, like we said before, it matters nothing at all. Neither of those are the correct response. There are four parts to our response for Jesus and his resurrection. The first one that we need to know and that we need to do now is number one, repent and believe. Repent and believe. And if, you don't, if you're not sure that that's the proper application, look what Jesus says here in Luke 24. Luke 24. Verse 46 is the application. After he opened their mind to understand the scriptures, he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. That's the application for you to turn away from sin. Turn away from yourself. Turn away from the world. That's what repentance means. Let go of sin. Let go of yourself and trying to be in charge. God is in charge. You turn to him. You believe in Jesus Christ. These are two sides of the same coin. I'm turning away to believe in Jesus and Jesus alone. As Peter explained to the religious leaders, When he told him later on in Acts chapter 5, he said, you need to stop preaching this Jesus. Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The reason Jesus rose was to give repentance, to give forgiveness of sins. Paul explains later in Athens in Acts 17, God commands all people everywhere to repent, Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance. How did he do that? By raising him from the dead. Jesus' resurrection from the grave is to show us that there will be a judgment, that there will be repentance and faith to believe when we respond properly. Jesus' life and death and resurrection is our salvation. Acts tells us. There is salvation in no one else. There is only one name under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. It's not your name, it's not my name, but Jesus alone. Romans 4 says righteousness will be accounted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Jesus our lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification you must surrender to jesus by repenting from your sin and believing in him yes his life yes his death yes his resurrection secondly how do i respond to jesus resurrection i submit to jesus as lord he is the Lord, continually submitting. Listen, you can't make Jesus your Lord. You don't decide to make Jesus your Lord. Jesus is Lord. Okay, we, we can submit to him. We can recognize Jesus as Lord and submit to him in faith, but we don't get to make him Lord. <laughs> he already is that. But because of our flesh, we have to continually submit, continually recognize, and do that until he brings us home. Do you know the reason? The Bible tells us, in the New Testament several times, and we're going to look at a few. The reason Jesus died and rose again was so that he would be recognized as Lord. You say, well, I thought it was so that there would be repentance. That also. <laughs> Romans 14 says, For to this end Christ died and lived again. Why? That he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Jesus is Lord. He's, he's the master, the leader, the, the, the God of us, our God, the dead and the living. That's why it was impossible that Jesus would stay dead, because he's Lord. That's why he is Lord as the judge, and as the Lord, he's the one who commissioned us to go out and tell other people this good news, that there is judgment coming. That's bad news, but the good news is that there's grace in Jesus Christ. So now we continually submit to him as Lord and Savior. It's not just repenting one time. It's not just submitting to him to, as Lord as often as we think. The, the response to his resurrection overwhelms and consumes our life, changes our identity, so that number three in our application, we live for Jesus. We live for Jesus. This may be surprising. But just as clear as it was that Jesus rose from the dead to be recognized as Lord, another reason he rose is so that we would live for him. 2 Corinthians five fifteen. He died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again. The reason that Jesus died and rose again was so that we would stop living for ourselves and live for him. As we read before, Pastor Kyle read in Romans 6, he died for all once and for all. And that's true for us as well. He explains that we who believe in Jesus Christ turn away from our sin. We're crucified with him. We die. We stop living for ourselves. We're no longer enslaved to sin. That's why Paul says so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We don't want to live in sin anymore. We don't want to wallow around in sin or or be okay with sin or be entertained by sin or love sin. We want to love Jesus. We want to live for Jesus. That's our proper response to him because he is alive. We don't think the same way. We don't act the same way or speak or feel the same way. Our every move and breath of the day is to be lived for our Savior. The reason we get up in the morning, the reason that we eat breakfast, the reason we eat lunch, the reason we have a snack in the afternoon, (laughs) the reason that we have dinner, the reason that we take naps or don't, the reason that we work, the reason that we live and breathe and move and have our being is because of Jesus Christ who is resurrected. Romans 7 says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. You've got other passages in your notes, but one more to remind you of in 1 Corinthians 6. When you have believed in Jesus, you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. He says, So glorify God in your body. How different is your life because of the resurrection of Jesus? Jesus. What did you do this past weekend? Oh, you know, we went and hiked and had fun. Why'd you do that? Because Jesus is alive. (laughs) What? I have hope. (laughs) What do you think about that last election? Well, I have hope because Jesus is alive. Why do you go to work every day? Why, why, do, you, why do you stick with it and, and love these children who, who aren't loving you very much in return, moms? <laughs> why do you do all of those things that you do? Dads, what are you doing? Why do you do all of those things? Because my Savior is alive. He gives meaning and purpose and hope to everything I do. There's another response for us to cover explicitly because of his resurrection. All of this has been spelled out for us because he is alive. We finish with this response because of his resurrection. Number four, praise Jesus forever. Forever. In Revelation 5, we get to read a couple of songs that are sung to Jesus. They're short, but they highlight his resurrection. There are four living creatures that are around the throne that are nothing like anything we've ever seen or heard of. There are 24 elders who all fall down before Jesus, and they sing to him, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. They're singing to the risen, living Savior Jesus because he was slain, but now he's not. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. That's what they sing to Jesus. The four living creatures and the 24 elders, they sing that to him, and they offer to him an incense bowl full of our prayers. They offer that to him. That's the song, but that's not all. They sing another song. Around the throne, the living creatures, around the elders are countless angels. It, it says in Revelation 5, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And they're all saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive worthy, uh, power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The lamb who was slain but is now alive. They all bow before him and they sing those songs of praise to glory and glory jesus christ because he's worthy but even that's not enough because revelation 5 says that he hears every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever amen there is our response worshiping this savior this risen lord forever Father, we worship you and we worship our risen Savior because he is alive. Lord God, you made him alive. Lord, you declared him to be alive. Father, we believe what you have said. God, we believe in him because he is your son. He is perfect. God, for a time, he took our sins upon himself and he paid those consequences. The wages of sin is death. God, but in Christ Jesus, your grace comes to us so that the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we praise you, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that each one of us who believe in this Jesus, this risen Lord, would live for him, God. That we would speak for him, that that we would uh, tell other people about him. Father, that people would see good works in us and glorify you. God, that they would be convinced by even more proof that a, a regular person like me, a sinner, an unworthy sinner like me can become a child of God in Jesus. Father, that we would be more living proof of our living Savior. Father, if there is anyone here who has never believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior, God, I pray that you would not allow them or us to leave until they come to you in repentance and faith, that you would be glorified, that you would be praised forever and ever. God, you will be. Father, we look forward to that time. Would you protect us Love us, guide us until then. In the name of our risen Savior, Jesus, amen.